There are a few crimes that stir the emotions quite like the crime of murder, the premature ending of the life of a human being that simply is a heinous crime. Yet one of the more morbid or twisted aspects about our Western culture uh, is the fascination with TV and movie dramas that depict one person taking the life of another. Uh, In fact, it's been estimated that by the time the average child reaches the end of high school, they would have actually seen, witnessed, 16,000 murders uh, or the immediate aftermath and over 200,000 acts of serious violence. Murder mysteries are primetime television viewing and bestsellers in our bookstores. Uh, Our legal system delineates Uh, or uh, categories or gradations of murder uh, based upon the degree of premeditation. Uh, For instance, the New Zealand Crimes Act defines it as an act where the offender means to cause or is likely to cause the death of another. Uh, There might be other ways that people take the life of someone, like manslaughter perhaps, but the, the definition of murder implies intent and forethought as to the consequences of an action. So, in in a country like ours, we're we're reasonably clear in our understanding about murder and probably even more clear on the fact that we've never actually committed it. Well, I can speak for myself about that. I'm I'm not sure about... We won't go there. The the, the people of Jesus' day also thought they knew a lot about murder too. It it was a serious crime with a serious penalty and the sixth out of the ten commandments was quite clear in forbidding it. But when Jesus spoke with them about the subject, he, he added some rather different definitions that were quite frankly would have been quite shocking to the people who were listening to him. Here's what he had to say in Matthew chapter 5, starting at verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with the brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the court. And anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fire of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First, go and be reconciled to them. Then come and offer your gift. Settle matters quickly with your adversary who has taken you to court. Do it while you are still together on the way, or your adversary may hand you over to the judge, and the judge may hand you over to the officer, and you may be thrown into prison. Truly, I tell you, you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. So so these verses are part of the passage of Scripture that we refer to as the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, and A few weeks ago, we began a series working our way through what's been called the essence of Jesus' teaching. And one of the interpretive keys to the verses that we're looking at today 
uh, as the first sentence, that you have heard that it was said to the people long ago. Uh, That's actually a phrase we're going to hear a number of times as we work through the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, And if you were here with us last Sunday, we noted how the ordinary people of Jesus' day didn't actually have copies of what we call the Bible today uh, in their homes or their personal possession. Uh, For a start, many of them were probably illiterate, but, but also copies of the laws of the Lord, what we call the Old Testament, tended to live in the temple or in synagogues. You didn't have uh, a series of scrolls in your own home. So the, the, the way that most people would hear about the teachings of the Lord was through the mouths of uh, religious leaders and teachers. They heard orally. Well, therein lay a problem. Because over the centuries, particularly the centuries leading up to the time of Jesus, Religious teachers and leaders had tried to define in ridiculous detail all the laws of the Lord down to the the nth degree, we'd probably say. And and in the process, they often squeezed the life out of it. Pedantic legalism ruled the day. In in the worldview of Jesus' day, the, 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 the notion, the perception of excuse me, been in right standing with God, this was achievable or at least provable by meticulous keeping of all these pedantic rules and regulations. Uh, Life was one big scorecard uh, where you could check off all the laws that you hadn't broken or the sins that you weren't guilty of committing. And, And for many within the religious leadership community, there was this sense of inflated pride. Well, I haven't done that. I must be righteous before God. And and no doubt when it came to the sixth commandment uh, about murder, there was a lot of check in the box. Nope, never done that one. And, And presumably, at face value, we too could put a guilt free check in that box as well. But then Jesus seemed to suggest Hang on a minute. Maybe there's some misunderstanding here. You may not have committed the crime to the letter of the law, but what about the spirit of the law? And so he launches himself into another one of those famous statements of Jesus, but I tell you, we may not have physically committed the act, but have we entertained the thought? A little humorous sidebar story, you uh, may know this, that the late Ruth Graham, the wife of the evangelist Billy Graham, was uh, once interviewed about her marriage. And uh, by all accounts, it it wouldn't have been an easy thing uh, having a husband like Billy Graham, and uh, who travelled extensively and uh, was constantly in the public spotlight. And she was asked by this interviewer uh, whether she had ever entertained the thought of being married to someone else. Had she ever contemplated divorce? To which Ruth Graham famously responded, well, no, I have never thought of divorce these 35 years of my marriage at that stage. But I did think of murder a few times. Well, well, I I suspect there was a certain amount of jaw-dropping amongst the people who listened to Jesus when he talked about the subject of murder. For for starters, he suggests 
that the crime doesn't merely occur in the hands of the murderer, it begins in the head and the heart. Or or to put that another way, in, in the eyes of God, murder or destruction of another person's life actually includes a range of thoughts and actions that are equally destructive. And bottom line, according to Jesus, a lot more of us might technically be guilty of murder than we might think. So, as he expounds this, he offers three illustrations or examples, each of which, as I say, were probably quite shocking to his original audience. And the first is is this, uh, this is my paraphrase of it, anger towards another person. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or a sister will be subject to judgment. Now, whoa here, hang on, What, what did Jesus mean? This sounds rather harsh. I mean, if, if, if anger is a definition of murder, then, well, I, I suspect we're, we're all guilty. Uh, we, we've all at times become angry at someone or, or something. Uh, in fact, some might even claim that Jesus was guilty of anger because he got pretty steamed up when he got to the temple and saw the merchants and the money changers ripping off the poor people and he drove them out with a whip that he made of small cords. Well, there are two words in the original Greek language, of course, that the New Testament was recorded in, that are translated as anger in our English Bibles. The first is the word thumos, and it described anger or wrath that flares up quickly and blazes with ferocity, but then calms down just as quickly, perhaps after the fuel is consumed. I mean, think of something like a a, a hay barn that's on fire, or maybe road rage might be a contemporary example that we could identify with when someone cuts us off and out of our mouth and anger comes some of those choice words that we don't find in the Bible. You're not looking like you understand. Perhaps that's just me. But it's anger that flares up and dies down, doesn't last or linger. The other word that you find in the, uh, the, the Greek language that's translated as anger is the word orge. And, and that described the kind of anger that is long-lived and continuous, frequently with a view toward revenge. It's the anger of a person who, who nurses his or her uh, uh, anger in, 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 in their heart in order to keep it warm. It, it describes anger that brews bitterness and resentment, sometimes even for years or feuds that go on for generations. Well, it's obviously this kind, second kind of anger is the word that Jesus used in the passage we're looking at. I mean, we, we all get angry at some stage. We lose our call. Uh, not necessarily warranted or good, but relatively normal. But sometimes it could even be argued that it's better to get the anger out than to let it fester inside. But the kind of anger that Jesus is talking about here is more serious than that. Passive aggression might be another manifestation. We bottle, we subdue our resentment and let it fester. It's actually more destructive. 
Jesus was referring to anger that is cool and calculating, anger that broods and stews over wrongs that one person has done against another person, anger that refuses to forget, that wants revenge, even perhaps wishing that that person was removed or even made dead. I've told before, I think, we, we once lived next door to a woman who hadn't spoken to her neighbor, for, uh, to her brother for 40 years. And as she, she talked about him, you could see the anger and the seething and the emotion on her face. What, what Jesus was suggesting, that in the eyes of God, this kind of anger towards another person, it's nothing short of actually ending their life. We may not have actually shot them with a gun, but the thought of doing so is just the same. So, so before we put a check in the box beside this one and say, nope, never done that, maybe it's worth thinking whether there are people against whom we continue to nurture a grudge. We keep an anger warm within. Because the act of murder is simply the outward expression of an internal issue. Then the second example that Jesus gives, I, I, I'm calling it the acts of discrimination. Again, anyone who says to a brother or sister, Raka, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said this? There are a couple of words here that need explanation. In fact, the, the version we read before didn't have the word Sanhedrin, it had court. Uh, being answerable to the court, the Sanhedrin was probably uh, a metaphor that Jesus was using to describe uh, that which was the highest court in the land. In, in other words, he was describing an action or an activity, an attitude that is actually really serious. The word raka is almost impossible to translate into English, which is why a number of translations simply transliterate it or import the original word into the English text. It actually referred more to a tone of voice than an actual description of a person. It was like an, an accent of contempt or an egregious uh, insult that one person hurls at another. To call someone raka was to deeply insult them, calling them a name that was derogatory or demeaning. <laughs> Maybe there's some valuable teaching here for politicians around the world these days who love to caricature their opponents with down-putting nicknames that slur their character. Another contemporary expression of this might be something like the, the sin of racial discrimination. Uh, calling someone raka was a bit like a person of one ethnicity looking down on a person of a different ethnicity and regarding the color of their skin as a sign of intellectual and moral inferiority. Or it was like socioeconomic discrimination regarding people of wealth as inherently more superior, more sophisticated, definitely more intelligent than those who are at the poorer end of the financial scale. Now, the, what Jesus is saying here is much more than simply name-calling. It was more the attitude of contempt 
and discrimination that goes with it. Regarding someone as an absolute no-hoper, useless, trash, like killing of a person's hope for change or improvement. Calling someone rucka was like the destruction of a person's self-esteem, murdering their dream of bettering themselves. The uh, repeated calling of a child, for instance, as dumb or thick or clumsy or comparing them to another sibling. Why, Why can't you be like... And that kind of repetitive verbal information is received by the spirit of a person and becomes the blueprint for their development. They become like that which they are informed by others. Now Jesus said that this kind of contempt of discrimination is nothing less than the crime of murder. Through our judgments and discrimination, we kill, we destroy the future potential of a person who was created in the image of God and God regards that as seriously as if we took a gun and shot them. Then the third example, I'm calling it character assassination. Anyone who says you fall will be in danger of the fire of hell. What did Jesus mean here? The, the, the word that's translated as fool in our English Bibles is the Greek word moros, from which we get a word like moron that describes someone of low intelligence. But, but in its original Greek context, this, this word didn't so much refer to intellectual foolishness as in like a low IQ as it did to moral foolishness. It described the person who was a scoundrel or who plays the fool or who fools around in terms of moral conduct. So so Jesus is not simply talking about the insult of calling the person an idiot or stupid, but rather their character assassination by labelling the person as immoral or corrupt. He, He was talking about casting a moral slur Uh, on the the moral character of another person, as serious as the crime of ending someone's life is the crime of destroying a person's reputation in the eyes of others. Gossiping about another person behind his or her back or spreading malicious rumours that damage, that's as serious as killing a person. Imagine the damage that's done to a man's reputation who was wrongly accused of something heinous like sexual abuse. Regardless of proof or evidence, the mud sticks and a man can lose his job, his family, his friends, over an absolutely unproven and false accusation. The words that we speak can be like deadly poison. We might be tempted to think we've never assassinated the character of another person, ourselves. We're not guilty of that. But every time we listen to or allow someone else to tell a piece of gossip about someone else, we become complicit. There's an old Yiddish proverb 
about a, a, a man who had a problem with gossip and one day he felt convicted about this and he asked the rabbi for advice. Tell me how I can make amends. And in response, the rabbi told him to take three pillows and go down to the public square and cut, the op- cut them open and wave them about in the wind. And then come back and tell me what happened. So the man did that. Went down to the village square, cut them open, watched the feathers fly away in the wind. And he came back to the rabbi. I did just what you said. Good, the rabbi smiled. Now, so you can realize how much harm is done by gossip, I want you to go back to the square and collect all the feathers. A murder, according to Jesus, is not merely the ending of another person's life. In some respects, that could even be the kind of thing to do. Uh, It can be far more painful and hurtful to be the object of another person's anger or discrimination or character assassination. And while we may not have actually taken the life of another person, there are countless other ways that we could be guilty of doing just that. But then Jesus went a step further and he said something that, like I say, probably sounded outrageous to his original audience because he linked the attitude of a person's heart toward others with our attempt to have a right relationship with God. For the people of Jesus' day, repairing or break up or, or, or repairing a broken or a strained relationship with God, that, that would require the making of a special atoning sacrifice, that maybe it was an animal, or if you were poor it was a bird, or, or a first fruits of a crop and so on, that were made at the temple. The sinner's hands will be laid upon the animal, and words of repentance will be spoken that transferred the person's guilt onto the animal, and then it will be sacrificed in the sinner's place. And Jesus suggested something very shocking. He said, therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there you remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. First go and be reconciled to that person. Then come and offer your gift. And this whole idea of the temple sacrificial system was a means of restoring broken relationship with God. Justice would be satisfied. The person who offered the sacrifice would be declared as back into a right relationship with God again. Uh, I guess in a a crude sense, in our day and age, we could liken this to the pain of a speeding fine or a parking infringement. Having paid the fine, the relationship between the person and the state is restored. Everything's fine again. Well, well, the problem was the whole concept of the sacrificial system had become sterile and mechanical, almost to infer that it doesn't really matter what the attitude of the heart is, so long as you do the ritual and you offer the sacrifice, everything's going to be okay. You can do whatever you like so long as you're willing to pay the fine. Well, Jesus suggested, no, it doesn't work that way. The attitude of a person's heart is actually more important than the act of sacrifice that they perform. And what he was suggesting actually wasn't anything new. 
According to Jewish law, if a sacrifice was to be effective in restoring relationship with God, it first had to include confession of sin and genuine repentance. And part of the repentance would include setting to right that which was done wrong. For instance, if I had stolen from you, I, I couldn't go and make a, a sacrifice at the temple and be forgiven for that. I first had to come back and return what I'd stolen or make recompense, pay compensation. I mean, repentance means so much more than feeling sorry or apologizing for what we've done. That's actually remorse. That's not repentance. Repentance, by definition, implies restitution. And Jesus was applying that principle to interpersonal relationships. And the bottom line was this. Restoration of friendship with God, being made righteous, not possible, until there is a setting to right of broken relationships with other people. God won't declare us righteous before him if we know there are people with whom we have a broken relationship. I, I can't punch you in the nose and then go and expect God to accept my sacrifice of praise and worship. Now first, I have to come back and seek your forgiveness and put our relationship to right. Then my worship toward God is acceptable. And, and I think this was the point behind Jesus' little statement in verse 25 and 26 where he alludes to something that I guess we might call today a disputes tribunal that settles property disputes between two parties. Settle matters quickly, Jesus said, with your adversary who is taking you to court. In other words, don't leave the matter unresolved and wait for someone else to adjudicate. That could well mean it costs you a whole lot more. Jesus' primary point, genuine relationship with God requires of us right relationships with other people to the best of our ability. You cannot have a snitch against another person and expect to have close friendship with Jesus. And that was the theme the Apostle John in particular picked up on. 1 John chapter 2, verse 11. Whoever hates his brother is in darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he's going because the darkness has blinded him. Or 1 John 4, verse 20. If anyone says, I love God, yet hates his brother, he or she is a liar. For anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. To know harmony before God requires us to deal with unresolved conflict with others. one sense, that's a very humbling thing to do. In another sense, it's one of the most liberating experiences a follower of Jesus can have. There's nothing quite like the sense of relief and joy at having broken relationships restored. Let me close with two real short stories. And they're all about the fact that broken friendships get in the way of relationship with God. The first is the story of a couple who'd been married for 20 years. And they began having more than their usual disagreements. They wanted their marriage to work, so they agreed on an idea that one of them had heard about. For one month, they planned to drop into a little box, a fault box, statements on slips of paper 
about daily irritations that the other party in the marriage performed. Well, the wife in this case, it was, was very diligent in her efforts and approach, leaving lid off the jam jar. Uh, wet towels on the shower floor. Not putting his socks and underwear in the hamper. And so on. At the end of the month, after dinner, the couple exchanged their boxes. And the husband worked through his, reflecting on what he had done wrong. Then the wife opened her box and began reading. They were all the same. The message on each slip simply read, I love you. Second story. General James Oglethorpe was a British soldier, a member of Parliament and a philanthropist in the 18th century. He once said to John Wesley, I never forgive and I never forget. To which Wesley apparently replied, Then, sir, I hope you never sin. Let's pray together.